0: When you came to church this morning, what did you expect to happen? What did you hope would happen? There are a lot of ways to answer that question, uh, and these answers might be represented in this room. I'm not sure. You might be here because it's safe, it's comfortable. This is the thing that you've been doing most of your life, or even if it's not most of your life, you've come to find church to be a very comfortable place for you. You might be here because you're curious, right? You've got questions about Christianity. You've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're curious. A friend invited you, and you're just curious about your friend. Like, what in the world do they see in all this religion stuff? Okay, you might be here because you're curious. You might be here because you're safe. You might be here because it's your job to be here. You might be here because you were brought here by somebody, and you may want to be here or not. But here's the thing. Uh, these are not mutually exclusive reasons. You could, there's a whole bunch of reasons you might be at church. And whatever your reasons are for getting out of bed on a beautiful, snowy Sunday morning and passing on the newspaper and cup of coffee on your porch option and actually coming over to church, whatever your reasons are for being here, I wonder if any of us really know what we're signing up for when we do come to church. When we open God's Word together, Do you expect to meet God? I mean, this is God we're talking about. Are you sure you want to come to church and meet God? Okay, do you want to run into him this morning? One of my favorite authors, a Catholic novelist named Annie Dillard, she's an essayist and novelist. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. In a different uh, thing that she wrote, she wrote this one time, "'On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions.'" Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God May wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. All right, Annie Dillard. We're starting a new sermon series, as I said this morning, and we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. And frankly, the author of Mark couldn't agree with Annie Dillard more. When Mark starts this book, this gospel about Jesus, he does it in the least subtle way it is ever possible to start anything ever. He says, Strap yourselves to your pews. Here's your crash helmet. I'm about to tell you something that changes everything. All right? In our world of overselling and under delivering, our world of soundbite news with big bold red print and exclamation points and every new thing that comes across the ticker is like the biggest thing ever we tend to roll our eyes at this kind of announcement right we we can hear that sort of thing and we're cynical all right i mean consider the iphone when the very first version of the iphone came out in 2007 steve jobs stood up in front of a packed house and announced apple has reinvented the phone right this is 2007 And at that time, it was totally true. I mean, this was like a game changer. They were years ahead of everybody else in the tech business when it came to mobile devices. This was a giant leap forward. But the problem is then, once you've done that, and once you have totally reinvented the thing that you're trying to sell, what do you do when you make an upgrade? Uh, How do you make a bigger splash than changing everything? Well, in 2010, they announced that they have changed everything again okay the new phone now, we changed everything once now we're changing everything again and then a couple years later version 6 they went ahead and said the same thing over and over again the only thing that's changed with this phone is everything okay so we see like we get the idea we're inundated with these grand claims right like this is going to change your life this is going to this is the epic new announcement that will change everything we've grown cynical we roll our eyes but the gospel of mark begins with a claim even bigger and even bolder than Apple. Mark asks, what if there really was something that changes everything? I mean, what if like that grand claim was true? Everything about your life, everything about the world, everything about the future, what if these weren't just grand words that sell a widget? But what if I had news that could answer the deepest questions of your life? bring health and healing to the parts of your life that you thought were untouchable and actually begin to cure things in the world that we all think are intractably broken? What if something this epic was real? An announcement that really could change everything? Well, the way that Mark communicates this announcement is simply by placing one word at the beginning of his gospel. The beginning. Okay, why is the first word such a grand statement? Mark was a student of the Old Testament, a good Jewish boy, and he knew what words stood at the very beginning of God's word, the very beginning of the entire story of everything, the whole creation. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when John, I'm sorry, when Mark, it's John Mark, we'll get to that in a minute. When Mark puts the beginning at the beginning of his gospel, Mark is signaling to us that what he's about to share with us is as world-changing as when the world was first created. Okay, this is the beginning of something so transformative, so life-changing, something so important that he wants his readers to know that what he's about to share deserves to be placed alongside other historic things such as, oh, the creation of the world, okay? So, like, here are the two most important things that ever happened. The creation of the world and this thing that Mark is about to share with us. The beginning of creation and the beginning of recreation. The beginning of a transformative, uh, transforming, life-changing news. So what's the news? What's this the beginning of? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. All right. The only other thing as important as the creation of the world, as the beginning of everything is the beginning of the gospel. This is the news Mark wants us to hear. What is the gospel? Well, our passage today, the first eight verses of Mark, is basically going to answer that question for us in three ways. Okay, we're going to see that the gospel is a new kind of book, a whole new kind of literature. We're going to see that the gospel is God's plan for you and for the world. We're also going to see that the gospel is a person, okay? So first, the gospel is a book. The author of Mark, as I just said, is John Mark. He was a contemporary of Jesus. Uh, He was one of his followers, but he wasn't on that inner ring of the 12 disciples. But he did know a lot of those guys, okay? And he kind of ran around with them. And he ended up being a partner in ministry with some of the key leaders of the early church. It's likely, actually, that in Jerusalem, the very first church meetings were at John Mark's house in Jerusalem. He went on early missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul, uh, and then later, he was a partner in ministry with Barnabas. And then, but at the end of the day, the, the disciple that Mark was the closest with was the apostle Peter. Mark was basically Peter's scribe, his administrative assistant. He went everywhere with Peter. And for years, they'd ministry together in Rome. In 1 Peter 5, Peter calls Mark his beloved son. So they were more than just kind of colleagues, okay? This was a a deep mentorship, discipleship kind of relationship. And so when we open the Gospel of Mark, we're basically reading Peter's firsthand testimony about Jesus recorded by his trusted friend, Mark. Now, Peter, of course, was one of the three closest followers that Jesus had. He witnessed firsthand events in Jesus' life that the rest of the 12 disciples didn't even get a chance to see, like the transfiguration. We'll run across that passage as we go through Mark in a while. But this gospel was the earliest written account of Jesus' life. It was written around 60 AD, is our best guess. So this is only 30 years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Mark was writing from Rome, like we said, where he and Peter were doing ministry together. And Mark is writing mainly to Romans, okay, so to a non-Jewish crowd, a Gentile audience. And he's writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution for their beliefs and writing to a world largely unaware of these monumental events that Jesus has done for the world. In other words, he's writing into a culture where it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus, where the winds of popularity are blowing in a very pluralistic hedonistic, self-serving direction, but where the amazing news about the things that Jesus has done uh, uh, need to be desperately announced and desperately shared with those around them. Any of that sound familiar? Can we resonate with Mark a little bit in this valley? And the way he goes about this is by carefully strategically and even beautifully laying out the historical facts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Remember, Mark's writing within a generation of Jesus's own life, and he's surrounded by others who knew Jesus personally. So there's this built-in fact check in everything that Mark writes. If he wants to embellish a little bit or sort of add a little thing, he can't do it because Peter's right there, and Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, it went down like this. Okay, there's a built-in fact check to what Mark tells us. In fact, it's funny. Mark is so committed to the facts about Jesus' life that it actually gets embarrassing for the disciples pretty quick. I mean, his mentor, Peter, one of the foundational leaders of the early church, Mark records really shameful and embarrassing things about Peter's story in this gospel when Peter denies Jesus three times at his crucifixion. Not only that, Mark includes this weird little account. When Jesus is getting arrested, all the disciples flee and run away, and one of the guards grabs a, the cloak of somebody, and one of these guys, a young man, just has to flee from Jesus totally naked. Okay? This is included in Mark's account, and most scholars believe that's a self-reference to Mark himself. Okay? So we're not shying away from the embarrassing, silly, shameful details. Mark is so committed to the facts of Jesus' life that he's going to tell it all. If you're trying to sell a story, you don't put the silly, embarrassing stuff in. If you're trying to tell the truth about a real life, you just put it all in. And that's what Mark has done for us. C.S. Lewis was a great student of ancient literature. He once commented, Either the Gospels are historical accounts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without a known predecessor Or a known successor for centuries suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. What's C.S. Lewis saying? Mark invented a whole new genre of literature right here, and it's a genre that is a a history of Jesus' life, but it's for a purpose. Okay, The genre that Mark invented is the gospel genre, and the gospel is history, it's biography, but with a purpose. It's not just to sell us on some great figure in history. There are a lot of authors who had done that sort of thing, right? Sold us on the Roman emperors or whatever. This is history and biography, but committed to the details so that it has a purpose in our lives. Yes, it's a story of Jesus, but it's also a call to action. It's a book that calls us not just to hear about the life of a great man, but to respond to it. You've got to reject him or you've got to follow him, Mark doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room in the middle, okay? That's the purpose of the gospel. In, in chapter 8, we'll get to it. Eventually, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? It's the central moment in the whole gospel. That is the purpose of this book. Peter had to answer that question in front of Jesus. Mark had to answer that question. Anyone who reads this gospel has to answer that question. Mark wrote this so that you and I would be confronted with the question... Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the point of this book. The gospel is a new kind of literature never before written in human history. The gospel is also the fulfillment of God's plan for human history. Mark announces the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then immediately he launches into two Old Testament prophecies about his arrival. So picking up in verse 2, we read, As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. These are actually a combination of two Old Testament references, one from Malachi 3 and one from Isaiah 40. But it's interesting, Mark, remember, Mark is in Rome, writing to Romans, largely non-Jewish audience that he has in mind. So why, from the very beginning, Start with two obscure references to scripture that most of these people probably haven't read nor do they care about. Why would Mark start this way? I mean he 's lo- losing readers already, you know like two lines in, he's, people are already glazing over like, what are we talking about? What are these references to the old testament i haven 't read the old testament i don 't care about the Old Testament. Why does Mark include these references right off the bat? because the gospel that Mark is a ab- um, is about to share with us is a gospel about God's plans for humanity, okay? God has been planning this moment for a long, long time. In fact, this gospel, the arrival of Jesus Christ in our world, it has been plan A from the beginning, okay? So remember that first momentous moment in history, the creation of everything? Even before that, this was God's plan, Okay, the, the arrival of Jesus in our world isn't plan B. It's not like, oh gosh, put him in the Garden of Eden, they really made a mess of that, dumpster fire, now what are we going to do? No, no, no. This is plan A. Okay, Jesus' arrival in our world is plan A from the beginning of creation. And Mark is calling our attention to the fact that God does have a plan for this world. And it's an amazing plan that he has for this world. And his plan is filled with promises. He has been giving promises to his people for hundreds and hundreds of years, for thousands of years. God is a God of promises. And these, what feel like obscure, random Old Testament references, are promises that are 400 years old, 700 years old. And Mark's point is God makes promises to his people and always keeps his promises. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has made promises to you and that he will keep his promises? I mean, I don't. Well, I do, but I don't, right? I mean, imagine if you believed the promises of God like all the way down, deep in your bones. Imagine the freedom and the joy and the the hope and the grace that would characterize your life if you believed the promises that God has laid out for his people throughout history, if you knew how rich they were and how certain and final God's word is to you. I mean, imagine if you believed Matthew twenty-eight twenty, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What if you believed you were never alone, not really, not in any way that matters deeply, that the opinions of, others, of other people can't touch you because this, the sum total of your value is not dependent on what other people think, that your success or your failure at school or work is not the sum total of your value because God is with you always. I mean, imagine the freedom. Imagine the freedom from fear and and the freedom for bold, brave acts of love if you believed that God was with you always. What if you believe that? Or what if you believe 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you except what is in common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Uh, But with temptation, he'll always provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. How would fighting sin in your life change if you believe that promise all the way? The promises of God. What if all of us in this room believe Zephaniah 3.17? Talk about an obscure Old Testament reference, ready? Here's Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He'll exult over you with loud singing. What if you and I knew deep in our bones with the certainty that can only come with faith in Jesus that God takes great delight in you personally and specifically, not in anything that you do, not in any way that you work for him, but just you because you're you. And what if you believe that? Imagine the freedom that would come with that. The gospel is God's plan A for his people, a plan that is overflowing with incredible promises. The riches of his love and his grace are endless. His promises include forgiveness and adoption, access to the king of all things, community, holiness. We could go on and on. These are certainties with Jesus, whether they were spoken 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, God always makes good on his word. That's the gospel. His promises to you are certain. The gospel is God's word to you. The gospel is God's plan for you. But last and most important of all, the gospel is God for you. The gospel is not good life advice. Uh, It's not a life coach. It's a person, it's a man who has offered the gift of his perfect life to you by grace. Picking up in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had the unique job of being the final prophet to announce the arrival of Jesus Christ. He was the final Old Testament style prophet to announce the promises of Jesus have arrived. And Jesus actually says of John elsewhere in Matthew, he says, truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Okay, we're going to have a chance to learn more about John the Baptist as we go through Mark. Um, But here I just want to point out how he does this. How does he go about preparing the way for Jesus? How do we, in this room, need to be prepared to meet Jesus? I mean, if we're here to encounter God, put on your crash helmet, what do you need to do to prepare to meet Jesus? John's a prophet in the style of Elijah. He's a wild man, all right? He's out there in the camel hair shirts, which were just as weird then as they would be today if someone walked in with a camel hair shirt. Okay, this isn't like a cultural thing. This is like, no, he's a weirdo. Uh, he's out there eating grasshoppers, uh, living in the wilderness, but he was a phenomenon, okay? There was a historian, Josephus, who was writing a few hundred years Um, after these events, and he actually spent more time writing about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. Okay, John the Baptist was a big deal. I mean, there were hundreds, there were thousands of people coming out to the river to hear him preach. It was a revival. And his message can be summed up in one word, repent. Okay, You want to know how to prepare your heart to meet Jesus? He says, repent. John's message was turn around, turn from your sin, and turn to God. Turn from your uncleanliness, to purity. Turn from your righteous, unrighteousness to holiness. And he offered them a baptism of repentance. He offered to bring you into the Jordan and submerge you as a sign of your longing to have your sins washed away, cleansed away by the water, to be clean, to repent. And what was so revolutionary about John, and it's kind of cool reading about this this week, is he told everybody they needed this baptism of repentance. Wealthy people, poor people, Upwardly mobile people, the nobodies. I mean, Jewish or not, before John the Baptist, Jewish leaders would actually baptize non-Jewish converts into Judaism. Okay? But no one had ever told those Jewish leaders they need a baptism also until John. He was the first one to go out and sort of confront the power of the religious leaders and say, you guys who know the most about the law of God, you actually need this the most okay, you understand God's high standards the most, you should understand that you don't live up to them the most. Turn from your sin, repent, turn to God. John preaches the law of God to prepare the way for the one who will fulfill that law perfectly. Here's the key thing to see about John, all right? John set out to expose people's spiritual needs through his preaching, but he cannot address their spiritual needs through his, pe- through his preaching. See, John's message of repentance can give us more information about God's expectations for us. He, his law and our sin, our need for forgiveness, but John doesn't actually have the power to fix our problem. A wash in the Jordan, it's a good gesture, but it can't get underneath the skin, right? It can't go deep enough to address the real issues that we need help with. John gave information about what God expects, but he didn't have the power to change anything. You guys understand the difference between information and power, right? Okay, um, let's cite Oreos for a moment. A number of years years ago, the FDA required that the calories of all food products be listed on the packaging. So the makers of Oreos, like other junk food makers, were required now to put exactly um, how bad these things are for you on the package. All right. So this could not be good for Oreo or other junk food sellers. I mean, before when I sat down and accidentally had an entire package of Oreos by myself while binge watching Battlestar Galactica, I could at least say like, oh, I had no idea it was doing that much carnage to my body. But now I have no excuse, right? The information is right there on the package. So they just wrapped up a seven year longitudinal study looking into the implications of putting that information on the outside of an Oreo package. And um, the seven-year study found that having access to the calorie count of food changed American eating habits exactly zero, right? (laughs) Information does not change us, okay? We can know everything there is to know. We can even want to change our habits. But the power of, of transformation, of, of having a heart change, of having a life changed, is different than knowing exactly what we need to do, okay? Knowing how to live and the ability and the power to live that way are not the same thing. And just as a pause, this is especially important for you church people out there, all right? You longtime Christians who know lots of stuff about the Bible—oh, wait, that's me— It's very, very easy for those of us who have grown up around the church and the Bible to think our long experience or our deep knowledge or our right theology is the thing that counts with Jesus. But information about God is not what we need. We need God himself. We need a power that can transform our lives. John and the law he preached can only diagnose you. It can only tell you how bad things really are. But Jesus, the one John points to, He can transform you. John tells us, I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism that Jesus Christ offers you is a baptism of power. It's the presence of God with you and in you. The Holy Spirit, God himself, cleansing you from the inside out like water cleanses you from the outside in. John is the messenger. Jesus is the message. He's the one we need. John is the voice speaking in the wilderness, but Jesus is the word that brings life to our souls. Here's the gospel. Ready? If you only hear one thing I say all morning, perk up now and listen to this. God doesn't give you a plan to make your life better. He gives you a person that will live a perfect life and apply it to you. This is the news that God offers to make your life work, to bring healing to the places that are broken, to bring reconciliation to the relationships that are broken to fix our greatest problem. There are not new things that we need to do. There are not new strategies we need to outline. There are not new disciplines we need to master. You don't need to get it together. You don't need to straighten up. You don't need more information or perfect knowledge. You don't even need great advice or a perfect example of how to live. You and I need salvation, okay? We need a new power to come into our life from the outside. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit that only Jesus Christ offers. A new life, a new power, a whole new creation in our life. That's the news that changes everything again. Okay, the creation of the world and the recreation of a broken world. These are the only two things that Mark tells us truly matter. Without hyperbole, without disappointment, without ever going out of style or breaking or needing an upgrade, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is World changing news. Do you believe it? That's what this gospel is going to be about. Do you believe that all those things are wrapped up in this one man? His word to you, his plan for you, and his own life applied to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll continue with us on this journey through Mark. I'm pretty excited about it as we unpack what all this means for us. I also hope that you uh, will invite a friend. This news that Mark is going to share with us is too good not to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your plan for the world, for our lives. We thank you that even when it feels like you're not at work, you are at work. That when it feels um, empty or lonely or hopeless, your promises stand and you will make good on your word. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, our gospel, the news that we don't have to be perfect because he has been perfect. Help us trust it Help us believe it. Help us share it. I see things in your name. Amen.